0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your editor, producer, host, and all-around person who does... Thank you for listening. As always, the show is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. I just have to say, the Highland Cow Slippers continue to keep my feet warm as I record. Oh man. Woo baby. And hopefully in October, I'll be throwing a pair out into... Uh, some panel group at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Hopefully that's going on in October. I hope everyone's doing well. I hope everyone's staying safe. I hope everyone's staying clean. And when you're out and about, staying sterile. I don't know. Hey, just keep your brain going. Listen to some Oz. <coughs> I I wonder what happens if if, uh, you sync uh, this podcast up with uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Or, who? maybe if you uh, play the podcast while you watch Live at Pompeii. I don't know. Anyway. So... (laughs) um, I I don't mean to laugh at my own jokes, but there's no one else here, too. So, yeah. uh, Hope you checked out and enjoyed David Heath talking about Wizard of Oz and pop culture. And... Coming up soon, we're going to have Ken Haidt talking about the Wizard of Oz. I should have done a special where I put them together, but I didn't think about that. Oh, man. I fell down some stairs the other day. I hurt my ankle and my wrist. It's. I'm, I'm finally getting this all out at the last minute, but yeah. So, hey, I hope you enjoy this. I hope you enjoy this week. This is the final week of Oz. This is the fifth story of Dorothy Gale, yeah, Dorothy Gale. Okay, so but there's a ton more Oz books out there. There is seriously an insane amount of Oz books. They kept writing them, not just uh, like um, kind of like the Oz, kind of like the Oz Society approves fan fiction kind of stuff. It's a ton of stuff out there. I I, I recommend checking out the artwork at least. It's it's very cool, interesting stuff, and yeah. Wizard of Oz, it's fun. its I enjoy it. hope, oh, Hopefully you're enjoying it and you've made it through the five books. I can't remember what next month is, but it's going to be fun. And also, don't forget to check out People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos coming out on Tuesday of this week. And we're going to be talking about a certain region of France that Clark Ashton Smith wrote about. And what else can we think? Yeah, no, remember to subscribe, listen, listen, Uh, Tell your friends about it. And that's the best way you can help the show is rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else that podcasts are found because that's what's helpful. Here we go.
1: Chapter 10. How the Cutting Clips Lived. The travelers had taken no provisions with them because they knew that they would be welcomed wherever they might go in the land of Oz and that the people would feed and lodge them with genuine hospitality. So about noon they stopped at a farmhouse and were given a delicious luncheon of bread and milk, fruits and wheat cakes with maple syrup. After resting a while and strolling through the orchards with their host, a round jolly farmer, they got into the wagon and again started the sawhorse along the pretty winding road. There were signposts at all the corners, and finally they came to one which read, Take this road to the clips." It was a hand pointing in the right direction, so they turned the sawhorse that way, and found it a very good road, but seemingly little traveled. "'I've never seen the Cutting Clips before,' remarked Dorothy. "'Nor I,' said the Captain-General. "'Nor I,' said the Wizard. "'Nor I,' said Bellina. "'I've hardly been out of the Emerald City since I arrived in this country,' added the shaggy man. "'Why, none of us has been there, then!' exclaimed the little girl. "'I wonder what the cotton-clips are like?' "'We'll soon find out,' said the wizard with a sly laugh. "'I've heard they are rather flimsy things.' The farmhouses became fewer as they proceeded, and the path was at times so faint that the sawhorse had hard work to keep in the road. The wagon began to jounce too, so they were obliged to go slowly.' After a somewhat wearisome journey they came in sight of a high wall painted blue with pink ornaments. This wall was circular and seemed to enclose a large space. It was so high that only the tops of the trees could be seen above it. The path led up to a small door in the wall which was closed and latched. Upon the door was a sign in gold letters reading as follows. "'Visitors are requested to move slowly and carefully "'and to avoid coughing or making any breeze or draft. "'That's strange,' said the shaggy man, reading the sign aloud. "'Who are the cut and clips, anyhow?' "'Why, they're paper dolls,' answered Dorothy. "'Didn't you know that?' "'Paper dolls? "'Then let's go somewhere else,' said Uncle Henry. "'We're too old to play with dolls, Dorothy.' "'But these are different,' declared the girl. "'They're alive.' "'Alive?' gasped Aunt Em in amazement. "'Yes, let's go in,' said Dorothy. "'So they all got out of the wagon, since the door in the wall was not big enough for them to drive the sawhorse and the wagon through it. "'You stay here, Toto,' commanded Dorothy, shaking her finger at the little dog. "'You're so careless that you might make a breeze if I let you inside.' Toto wagged his tail as if disappointed at being left behind, but he made no effort to follow them. The wizard unlatched the door, which opened outward, and they all looked eagerly inside. Just before the entrance was drawn up a line of tiny soldiers with uniforms brightly painted with paper guns upon their shoulders. They were exactly alike from one end of the line to the other and all were cut out of paper and joined together in the centers of their bodies. As the visitors entered the enclosure, the wizard let the door swing back into place, and at once the line of soldiers tumbled over, fell flat upon their backs, and lay fluttering upon the ground. "'Hi there,' called one of them. "'What do you mean by slamming the door and blowing us over?' "'I beg your pardon, I'm sure,' said the wizard regretfully. "'I didn't know you were so delicate.' "'We're not delicate,' retorted another soldier, raising his head from the ground. "'We are strong and healthy, but we can't stand drafts.' "'May I help you up?' asked Dorothy. "'If you please,' replied the end soldier. "'But do it gently, little girl.' Dorothy carefully stood up the line of soldiers who first dusted their painted clothes and then saluted the visitors with their paper muskets. From the end it was easy to see that the entire line had been cut out of paper, although from the front the soldiers looked rather solid and imposing. "'I have a letter of introduction from Princess Ozma to Miss Cuttenclip," announced Dorothy. "'Very well,' said the end soldier, and blew upon a paper whistle that hung around his neck. At once a paper soldier in a captain's uniform came out of a paper house nearby and approached the group at the entrance. He was not very big, and he walked rather stiffly and uncertainly on his paper legs. But he had a pleasant face with very red cheeks and very blue eyes, and he bowed so low to the strangers that Dorothy laughed, and the breeze from her mouth nearly blew the captain over. He wavered and struggled, and finally managed to remain upon his feet. "'Take care, miss.' he said warningly. You're breaking the rules, you know, by laughing. Oh, I didn't know that, she replied. To laugh in this place is nearly as dangerous as to cough, said the captain. You'll have to breathe very quietly, I assure you. We'll try to, promised the girl. May we see Miss Cuttenclip, please? You may, promptly returned the captain. This is one of her reception days. "'Be good enough to follow me?' He turned and led the way up a path, and as they followed slowly, because the paper captain did not move very swiftly, they took the opportunity to gaze around them at this strange paper country. Beside the path were paper trees, all cut out very neatly and painted a brilliant green color, and back of the trees were rows of cardboard houses, painted in various colors, but most of them having green blinds. Some were large and some were small, and in the front yards were beds of paper flowers quite natural in appearance. Over some of the porches paper vines were twined, giving them a cozy and shady look. As the visitors passed along the street, a good many paper dolls came to the doors and windows of their houses to look at them curiously. These dolls were nearly all the same height, but some were cut into various shapes, some being fat and some lean. The girl dolls wore many beautiful costumes of tissue paper, making them quite fluffy, but their heads and hands were no thicker than the paper of which they were made. Some of the paper people were on the street, walking along or congregated in groups and talking together, but as soon as they saw the strangers, They all fluttered into the houses as fast as they could go, so as to be out of danger. "'Excuse me if I go edgewise,' remarked the captain, as they came to a slight hill. "'I can get along faster that way, and not flutter so much.' "'That's all right,' said Dorothy. "'We don't mind how you go, I'm sure.' At one side of the street was a paper pump, and a paper boy was pumping paper water into a paper pail. The yellow hen— "'happened to brush against this boy with her wing, "'and he flew into the air and fell into a paper tree "'where he stuck until the wizard gently pulled him out. "'At the same time the pail went into the air, "'spilling the paper water, "'while the paper pump bent nearly double. "'Goodness me!' said the hen. "'If I should flop my wings, "'I believe I'd knock over the whole village.' "'Then don't flop them, please don't,' entreated the captain. "'Miss Cuttenclip would be very much distressed "'if her village was spoiled.' "'Oh, I'll be careful,' promised Bellina. "'Are not all these paper girls and women "'named Miss Cuttenclips?' inquired omby "'No, indeed,' answered the captain, "'who was walking better since he began to move edgewise. "'There is but one Miss Cuttenclip "'who is our queen, because she made us all. "'These girls are Cuttenclips, to be sure,' But their names are Emily, and Polly, and Sue, and Betty, and such things. Only the Queen is called Miss Cuttenclip. "'I must say, this place beats anything I ever heard of,' observed Aunt Em. "'I used to play with paper dolls myself, and cut them out, but I never thought I'd see such things alive.' "'I don't see as it's any more curious than hearing hens talk,' returned Uncle Henry." "'You're likely to see many queer things in the land of Oz, sir,' said the wizard. "'But a fairy country is extremely interesting when you get used to being surprised.' "'Here we are,' called the captain, stopping before a cottage. "'This house was made of wood and was remarkably pretty in design. In the Emerald City it would have been considered a tiny dwelling indeed, but in the midst of this paper village it seemed immense.' Real flowers were in the garden, and real trees grew beside it. Upon the front door was a sign reading, Miss Cuttenclip. Just as they reached the porch the front door opened, and a little girl stood before them. She appeared to be about the same age as Dorothy, and smiling upon her visitors, she said sweetly, ''You are welcome.'' All the party seemed relieved to find that here was a real girl of flesh and blood. She was very dainty and pretty as she stood there welcoming them. Her hair was a golden blonde, and her eyes turquoise blue. She had rosy cheeks and lovely white teeth. Over her simple white lawn dress she wore an apron with pink and white checks, and in one hand she held a pair of scissors. May we see Miss Cuttenclip, please? asked Dorothy. I am Miss Cuttenclip, was the reply. Won't you come in? She held the door open while they all entered a pretty sitting-room that was littered with all sorts of paper, some stiff, some thin, and some tissue. The sheets and scraps were of all colors. Upon a table were paints and brushes, while several pair of scissors of different sizes were lying about. "'Sit down, please,' said Miss Cuttenclip, clearing the paper scraps off some of the chairs. "'It is so long since I've had any visitors,' that I am not properly prepared to receive them, but I am sure you will pardon my untidy room, for this is my workshop." "'Do you make all the paper dolls?' inquired Dorothy. "'Yes, I cut them out with my scissors, and paint the faces and some of the costumes. It is very pleasant work, and I am happy making my paper village grow.' "'But how do the paper dolls happen to be alive?' asked Aunt Em. The first dolls I made were not alive, said Miss Cuttenclip. I used to live near the castle of a great sorceress named Glinda the Good, and she saw my dolls and said they were very pretty. I told her I thought I would like them better if they were alive, and the next day the sorceress brought me a lot of magic paper. This is live paper, she said, and all the dolls you cut out of it will be alive and able to think and to talk. When you have used it all up, come to me and I will give you more. Of course, I was delighted with this present, continued Miss Cuttenclip, and, and at once set to work and made several paper dolls, which, as soon as they were cut out, began to walk around and talk to me. But they were so thin that I found that any breeze would blow them over and scatter them dreadfully, so Glinda found this lonely place for me, where few people ever come she built the wall to keep any wind from blowing away my people, and told me I could build a paper village here and be its queen. That is why I came here and settled down to work and started the village you now see. It was many years ago that I built the first houses, and I've kept pretty busy and made my village grow finely, and I need not tell you that I am very happy in my work. Many years ago, exclaimed Aunt Em, why... "'How old are you, child?' (laughs) "'I never keep track of the years,' said Miss Cuttenclip, clip laughing. "'You see, I don't grow up at all, "'but stay just the same as I was when I first came here. "'Perhaps I'm older even than you are, madam, "'but I couldn't say for sure.' "'They looked at the lovely little girl, wonderingly, "'and the wizard asked, "'What happens to your paper village when it rains?' "'It does not rain here,' replied Miss Cuttenclip. Glinda keeps all the rainstorms away, so I never worry about my dolls getting wet. But now, if you will come with me, it will give me pleasure to show you over my paper kingdom. Of course, you must go slowly and carefully and avoid making any breeze. They left the cottage and followed their guide through the various streets of the village. It was indeed an amazing place, when one considered that it was all made with scissors and the visitors were not only greatly interested but full of admiration for the skill of little miss cut in one place a large group of especially nice paper dolls assembled to greet their queen whom it was easy to see they loved early these dolls marched and danced before the visitors and then they all waved their paper handkerchiefs and sang in a sweet chorus a song called The Flag of Our Native Land. At the conclusion of the song, they ran up a handsome paper flag on a tall flagpole, and all the people of the village gathered around to cheer as loudly as they could, although, of course, their voices were not especially strong. Miss Cuttenclip was about to make her subjects a speech in reply to this patriotic song when the Shaggy Man happened to sneeze. He was a very loud and powerful sneezer at any time, and he had tried so hard to hold in this sneeze that when it suddenly exploded, the results were terrible. The paper dolls were mowed down by dozens and flew and fluttered in wild confusion in every direction, tumbling this way and that, and getting more or less wrinkled and bent. A wail of terror and grief came from the scattered throng, and Miss Cuttenclip exclaimed, Dear me, dear me, and hurried at once to the rescue of her overturned people. Oh, shaggy man, how could you? Asked Dorothy reproachfully. I couldn't help it, really, I couldn't, protested the shaggy man, looking quite ashamed. And I had no idea it took so little to upset these paper dolls. So little? said Dorothy. Why, it was most as bad as a Kansas cyclone. And then she helped Miss Cuttenclip rescue the paper folk and stand them on their feet again. Two of the cardboard houses had also tumbled over and the little queen said she would have to repair them and paste them together before they could be lived in again and now fearing they might do more damage to the flimsy paper people they decided to go away but first they thanked miss cuttenclip very warmly for her courtesy and kindness to them any friend of princess ozma is always welcome here unless he sneezes said the queen with a rather severe look at the shaggy man who hung his head. "'I like to have visitors admire my wonderful village, and I hope you will call again.' Miss Cuttenclip herself led them to the door in the wall, and as they passed along the street, the paper dolls peered at them half fearfully from the doors and windows. Perhaps they will never forget the shaggy man's awful sneeze, and I am sure they were all glad to see the meat people go away.' End of chapter 10. Hey
0: everyone, I hope you're enjoying Emerald City of Oz. And just a reminder, it really helps if you, you don't have to donate money. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is go to wherever you find this show and just review it. Give it a couple of stars. Give it well more than a couple of stars. I mean, at least three or four. And, you know, always say something. Not always. Geez, I don't want to tell you what to do. But say something nice. I don't know. There's people who don't like the first three minutes and are, like, really mean about it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not... Anyway, just, just, it helps the show and it gets me money for advertising so I don't have to do this in the middle of the show. All right. Thank you very much and hope you enjoy the next 15 to 20 minutes left of the show. All right. Thank you. Have a good one.
1: How the General Met the First and Foremost. On leaving the growly wogs, General Guff had to recross the Ripple Lands, and he did not find it a pleasant thing to do. Perhaps having his whiskers pulled out one by one, and being used as a pincushion for the innocent amusement of a good-natured jailer, had not improved the quality of Guff's temper, for the old gnome raved and raged at the recollection of the wrongs he had suffered, and vowed to take vengeance upon the growlywogs after he had used them for his purposes, and Oz had been conquered. He went on in this furious way until he was half across the ripple land. Then he became seasick, and the rest of the way this naughty gnome was almost as miserable as he deserved to be. But when he reached the plains again and the ground was firm under his feet, he began to feel better and instead of going back home he turned directly west. A squirrel perched in a tree saw him take this road, and called to him warningly, "'Look out!' but he paid no attention. An eagle paused in its flight through the air to look at him wonderingly and say, "'Look out!' but on he went. No one can say that Guff was not brave, for he had determined to visit those dangerous creatures the phanphasms who resided upon the very top of the dread mountain of fantastico the phanphasms were herbs and so dreaded by mortals and immortals alike that no one had been near their mountain home for several thousand years yet general guff hoped to induce them to join in his proposed warfare against the good and happy oz people guff knew very well that the Phanphasms would be almost as dangerous to the gnomes as they would to the Ozites, but he thought himself so clever that he believed he could manage these strange creatures and make them obey him. And there was no doubt at all that if he could enlist the services of the Phanphasms, their tremendous power, united to the strength of the Growlywogs and the cunning of the Whimsies, would doom the land of Oz to absolute destruction. So the old gnome climbed the foothills and trudged along the wild mountain paths until he came to a big gully that encircled the mountain of Fantastico and marked the boundary line of the Dominion of the Phanphasms. This gully was about a third of the way up the mountain, and it was filled to the brim with red-hot molten lava in which swam fire-serpents and poisonous salamanders. The heat from this mass and its poisonous smell were both so unbearable that even birds hesitated to fly over the gully but circled around it, all living things kept away from the mountain. Now Guff had heard, during his long lifetime, many tales of these dreaded phanfasms, so he had heard of this barrier of melted lava, and also he had been told that there was a narrow bridge that spanned it in one place. So he walked along the edge until he found the bridge. It was a single arch of grey stone, and lying flat upon the bridge was a scarlet alligator seemingly fast asleep. When Guff stumbled over the rocks and approaching the bridge, the creature opened its eyes, from which tiny flames shot in all directions, and, after looking at the intruder very wickedly, the scarlet alligator closed its eyelids again and lay still. Guff saw there was no room for him to pass the alligator on the narrow bridge, so he called out to it. Good morning, friend. I don't wish to hurry you, but please tell me if you were coming down or going up. Neither, snapped the alligator, clicking its cruel jaws together. The general hesitated. "'Are you likely to stay there long?' he asked. "'A few hundred years or so,' said the alligator. Guff softly rubbed the end of his nose and tried to think what to do. "'Do you know whether the first and foremost Phanphasm of Fantastico is at home or not?' he presently inquired. "'I expect he is, seeing he is always at home,' replied the alligator. "'Ah, who is that coming down the mountain?' asked the gnome, gazing upward. The alligator turned to look over its shoulder, and at once Guff ran to the bridge and leaped over the sentinel's back before it could turn back again. The scarlet monster made a snap at the gnome's left foot, but missed it by fully an inch. "'Ha-ha!' laughed the general, who was now on the mountain-path. I fooled you that time. So you did, and perhaps you fooled yourself, retorted the alligator. Go up the mountain, if you dare, and find out what the first and foremost will do to you. I will, declared Guff boldly, and on he went up the path. At first the scene was wild enough, but gradually it grew more and more awful in appearance. All the rocks had the shapes of frightful beings, and even the tree trunks were gnarled and twisted like serpents. Suddenly there appeared before the gnome a man with the head of an owl. His body was hairy like that of an ape, and his only clothing was a scarlet scarf twisted around his waist. He bore a huge club in his hand, and his round owl eyes blinked fiercely upon the intruder. "'What are you doing here?' he demanded, threatening Guff with his club. "'I've come to see the first and foremost phantasm of Fantastico,' replied the general, who did not like the way this creature looked at him, but still was not afraid. "'Ah, you shall see him,' the man said with a sneering laugh. "'The first and foremost shall decide upon the best way to punish you.' "'He will not punish me,' returned Guff calmly. For I have come here to do him and his people a rare favor. Lead on, fellow, and take me directly to your master. The owl man raised his club with a threatening gesture. If you try to escape, he said, beware. But here the general interrupted him. Spare your threats, said he, and do not be impertinent, or I will have you severely punished. Lead on and keep silent. This Guff was really a clever rascal, and it seems a pity he was so bad, for in a good cause he might have accomplished much. He realized that he had put himself into a dangerous position by coming to this dreadful mountain. But he also knew that if he showed fear, he was lost. So he adopted a bold manner as his best defense. The wisdom of this plan was soon evident, for the phantasm with the owl's head turned and led the way up the mountain. At the very top was a level plain, upon which were heaps of rocks, that at first glance seemed solid. On looking closer Guff discovered that these rock-heaps were dwellings, for each had an opening. Not a person was to be seen outside the rock-huts, all was silent. The owl-man led the way among the groups of dwellings to one standing in the center. It seemed no better and no worse than any of the others. Outside the entrance to this rock-heap the guide gave a low wail that sounded like Leo. Suddenly there bounded from the opening another hairy man. This one wore the head of a bear. In his hand he bore a brass hoop. He glared at the stranger in evident surprise. "'Why have you captured this foolish wanderer and brought him here?' he demanded, addressing the owl man. "'I did not capture him,' was the answer. "'He passed the scarlet alligator and came here of his own free will and accord.' The first and foremost looked at the general. "'Have you tired of life, then?' he asked. "'No, indeed,' answered Guff. I am a gnome, and the chief general of King Roquat the Red's great army of gnomes. I come of a long-lived race, and I may say that I expect to live a long time yet. Sit down, you fanfasms, if you can find a seat in this wild haunt, and listen to what I have to say." With all his knowledge and bravery General Guff did not know that the steady glare from the bare eyes was reading his inmost thoughts as surely as if they had been put into words. He did not know that these despised rock-heaps of the fanfasms were merely deceptions to his own eyes, nor could he guess that he was standing in the midst of one of the most splendid and luxurious cities ever built by magic power. All that he saw was a barren waste of rock-heaps, a hairy man with an owl's head, and another with a bear's head. The sorcery of the Phanphasms permitted him to see no more. Suddenly the first and foremost swung his brass hoop, and caught Guff around the neck with it. The next instant, before the general could think what had happened to him, he was dragged inside the rock hut. Here his eyes still blinded to realities, he perceived only a dim light by which the hut seemed as rough and rude inside as it was outside. Yet he had a strange feeling that many bright eyes were fastened upon him, and that he stood in a vast and extensive hall. The first and foremost now laughed grimly and released his prisoner. ''If you have anything to say that is interesting,'' he remarked, ''speak out before I strangle you.'' So Guff spoke out. He tried not to pay any attention to the strange rustling sound that he heard, as of an unseen multitude drawing near to listen to his words, his eyes could see only the fierce bear man, and to him he addressed his speech. First he told him of his plan to conquer the land of Oz and plunder the country of its riches and enslave its people, who, being fairies, could not be killed. After relating all this, and telling of the tunnel the Nome King was building, he said he had come to ask the first and foremost to join the Gnomes with his band of terrible warriors, and help them to defeat the Oz people. The general spoke very earnestly and impressively, but when he had finished, the Bear Man began to laugh as if much amused and his laughter seemed to be echoed by a chorus of merriment from an unseen multitude. Then, for the first time, Guff began to feel a trifle worried. "'Who else has promised to help you?' finally asked the first and foremost. "'The whimsies," replied the general. Again the bare-headed Phanfasm laughed. "'Any others?' he inquired. "'Only the Growlywogs,' said Gulf. This answer set the first and foremost laughing anew. "'What share of the spoils am I to have?' was the next question. "'Anything you like, except King Roquat's magic belt,' replied Guff. At this the fan set up a roar of laughter, which had its echo in the unseen chorus, and the bear-man seemed so amused that he actually rolled upon the ground and shouted with merriment. "'Oh, these blind and foolish gnomes!' he said. "'How big they seem to themselves, and how small they really are!' Suddenly he arose and seized Guff's neck with one hairy paw, dragging him out of the hut into the open. Here he gave a curious wailing cry, and, as if in answer, from all the rocky huts on the mountaintop, came flocking a horde of fanfasms, all with hairy bodies but wearing heads of various animals, birds, and reptiles. All were ferocious and repulsive-looking to the deceived eyes of the gnome, and Guff could not repress a shudder of disgust as he looked upon them. The first and foremost slowly raised his arms, and in a twinkling his hairy skin fell from him, and he appeared before the astonished gnome as a beautiful woman, clothed in a flowing gown of pink gauze. In her dark hair flowers were entwined, and her face was noble and calm. At the same instant the entire band of phanfasms was transformed into a pack of howling wolves, running here and there as they snarled and showed their ugly yellow fangs. The woman now raised her arms. Even as the man-bear had done, and in a twinkling, the wolves became crawling lizards, while she herself changed into a huge butterfly. Guff had only time to cry out in fear and take a step backward to avoid the lizards, when another transformation occurred, and all returned instantly to the forms they had originally worn. Then the first and foremost who had resumed his hairy body and bare head, turned to the gnome and asked, "'Do you still demand our assistance?' "'More than ever,' answered the general firmly. "'Then tell me, what can you offer the fanfasms "'that they have not already?' inquired the first and foremost. "'Guff hesitated. He really did not know what to say. "'The gnome king's vaunted magic belt,' seemed a poor thing compared to the astonishing magical powers of these people—gold, jewels, and slaves they might secure in any quantity without special effort. He felt that he was dealing with powers greatly beyond him. There was but one argument that might influence the Phanfasms, who were creatures of evil. Permit me to call your attention to the exquisite joy of making the happy "'Unhappy,' said he at last. "'Consider the pleasure of destroying innocent and harmless people.' "'Ah, you have answered me,' cried the first and foremost. "'For that reason alone we will aid you. "'Go home, and tell your bandy-legged king that as soon as his tunnel is finished, "'the Phantasms will be with him and lead his legions to the conquest of Oz.' "'The deadly desert alone has kept us from destroying Oz long ago, "'and your underground tunnel is a clever thought. "'Go home and prepare for our coming.' "'Guff was very glad to be permitted to go with this promise. "'The Owl Man led him back down the mountain path "'and ordered the Scarlet Alligator to crawl away "'and allow the gnome to cross the bridge in safety. "'After the visitor had gone,' A brilliant and gorgeous city appeared upon the mountaintop, clearly visible to the eyes of the gaily dressed multitude of phantasms that lived there. And the first and foremost, beautifully arrayed, addressed the others in these words. It is time we went into the world, and brought sorrow and dismay to its people. Too long have we remained for ourselves upon this mountaintop, For while we are thus secluded, many nations have grown happy and prosperous, and the chief joy of the race of phanthasms is to destroy happiness. So I think it is lucky that this messenger from the gnomes arrived among us just now to remind us that the opportunity has come for us to make trouble. We will use King Roquat's tunnel to conquer the land of Oz. Then we will destroy the whimsies, the growlywogs, and the gnomes, and afterward go out to ravage and annoy and grieve the whole world. The multitude of evil fanfasms eagerly applauded this plan, which they fully approved. I am told that the herbs are the most powerful and merciless of all the evil spirits— and the phantasms of Fantastico belong to the race of herbs. End of Chapter Eleven. Chapter Twelve: How They Matched the Fuddles. Dorothy and her fellow travelers rode away from the Cut and Clip Village and followed the indistinct path as far as the signpost. Here they took the main road again, and proceeded pleasantly through the pretty farming country. When evening came they stopped at a dwelling, and were joyfully welcomed, and given plenty to eat and good beds for the night. Early the next morning, however, they were up and eager to start, and after a good breakfast they bade their host good-bye, and climbed into the red wagon, to which the sawhorse had been hitched all night, being made of wood. This horse never got tired nor cared to lie down. Dorothy was not quite sure whether he ever slept or not, but it was certain that he never did when anybody was around. The weather is always beautiful in Oz, and this morning the air was cool and refreshing, and the sunshine brilliant and delightful. In about an hour they came to a place where another road branched off. There was a signpost here which read, This way to Fuddlecumjig. Oh, here is where we turn, said Dorothy, observing the sign. What, are we going to Fuddlecumjig? asked the Captain General. Yes, Ozma thought we might enjoy the fuddles. They are said to be very interesting, she replied. No one would suspect it from their name, said Aunt Em. Who are they, anyhow? More paper things? I think not, answered Dorothy laughing. "'but I can't say exactly Aunt Em what they are, we'll find out when we get there. "'Perhaps the wizard knows,' suggested Uncle Henry. "'No, I've never been there before,' said the wizard, "'but I've often heard of Jig and the Fuddles "'who are said to be the most peculiar people in all the land of Oz.' "'In what way?' asked the shaggy man. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' said the wizard." Just then, as they rode along the pretty green lane toward Fuddlecumjig, they espied a kangaroo sitting by the roadside. The poor animal had its face covered with both its front paws, and was crying so bitterly that the tears coursed down its cheeks in two tiny streams and trickled across the road, where they formed a pool in a small hollow. The sawhorse stopped short at this pitiful sight, and Dorothy cried out with ready sympathy. "What's the matter, Kangaroo?" Boo-hoo, <coughs> <coughs> boo-hoo! Wailed the Kangaroo. "I've lost my Boo-hoo,
0: <coughs> 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 boo
1: Poor thing," said the Wizard. "She's lost her Mister. It's probably her husband, and he's dead." "'No, no, no!' sobbed the kangaroo. it "'It isn't that. I've lost my m-m-m-o-boo, oh, boo-hoo!' "'I know,' said the shaggy man. "'She's lost her mirror!' "'No, it's my m boo my oh, boo And the kangaroo cried harder than ever. "'It must be her mince pie Suggested Aunt Em, or her milk toast? Proposed Uncle Henry. I've lost my m- m- mittens," said the kangaroo, getting it out at last. "Oh!" cried the yellow hen with a cackle of relief. "Why didn't you say so before?" "Oh, I, I couldn't," answered the kangaroo. "But see here," said Dorothy. "You don't need mittens in this warm weather." "'Yes, indeed I do,' replied the animal, "'stopping her sobs and removing her paws from her face "'to look at the little girl reproachfully. "'My hands will get all sunburned and tanned without my mittens, "'and I've worn them so long that I'll probably catch cold without them.' "'Nonsense,' said Dorothy. "'I've never heard of any kangaroo wearing mittens.' "'Didn't you?' asked the animal, as if surprised.' "'Never,' repeated the girl. "'And you'll probably make yourself sick if you don't stop crying. Where do you live?' "'About two miles beyond Fuddlecumjig,' was the answer. "'Grandmother Gnit made me the mittens, and she's one of the Fuddles.' "'Well, you'd better go home now, and perhaps the old lady will make you another pair,' suggested Dorothy. "'We're on our way to Fuddlecumjig, and you may hop along beside us.' So they rode on, and the kangaroo hopped beside the red wagon, and seemed quickly to have forgotten her loss. By and by, the wizard said to the animal, "'Are the fuddles nice people?' "'Oh, very nice,' answered the kangaroo. "'That is, when they're properly put together. But they get dreadfully scattered and mixed up at times, and then you can't do anything with them.' "'What do you mean by their getting scattered?' inquired Dorothy." "'Why, they're made in a good many small pieces,' explained the kangaroo. "'And whenever any stranger comes near them, "'they have a habit of falling apart and scattering themselves around. "'That's when they get so dreadfully mixed, "'and it's a hard puzzle to put them together again.' "'Who usually puts them together?' asked Ombi-Ambi. "'Anyone who is able to match the pieces. "'I sometimes put Grandmother Gnit together myself.' "'because I know her so well I can tell every piece that belongs to her. "'Then when she's all matched she knits for me, "'and that's how she made my mittens. "'But it took a good many days hard knitting, "'and I had to put grandmother together a good many times, "'because every time I came near she'd scatter herself. "'I should think she would get used to your coming and not be afraid,' said Dorothy. "'It isn't that,' replied the kangaroo. They're not a bit afraid when they're put together, and they're usually very jolly and pleasant. It's just a habit they have to scatter themselves, and if they didn't do it, they wouldn't be fuddles. The travelers thought upon this quite seriously for a time, while the sawhorse continued to carry them rapidly forward. Then Aunt Em remarked, I don't see much use our visitin' these fuddles. If we find them scattered all we can do is to sweep em up and then go about our business." Oh, I believe we'd better go on, replied Dorothy. I'm getting hungry, and we must try to get some luncheon at Jig. Perhaps the food won't be scattered as badly as the people. You'll find plenty to eat there, declared the kangaroo, hopping along in big bounds, because the sawhorse was going so fast. "'and they have a fine cook, too, if you can manage to put him together. "'There's a town now just ahead of us.' "'They looked ahead and saw a group of very pretty houses "'standing in a green field a little apart from the main road. "'Some munchians came here a few days ago "'and matched a lot of people together,' said the kangaroo. "'I think they are together yet, "'and if you go softly without making any noise, "'perhaps they won't scatter.' "'Let's try it,' suggested the wizard. So they stopped the sawhorse and got out of the wagon, and after bidding good-bye to the kangaroo, who hopped away home, they entered the field and very cautiously approached the group of houses. So silently did they move that soon they saw through the windows of the house people moving around while others were passing to and fro in the yards between the buildings. They seemed much like other people from a distance, and apparently they did not notice the little party so quietly approaching. They had almost reached the nearest house when Toto saw a large beetle crossing the path and barked loudly at it. Instantly a wild clatter was heard from the houses and yards. Dorothy thought it sounded like a sudden hailstorm, and the visitors, knowing that caution was no longer necessary, hurried forward to see what had happened. After the clatter an intense stillness reigned in the town. The strangers entered the first house they came to, which was also the largest, and found the floor strewn with pieces of the people who lived there. They looked much like fragments of wood neatly painted, and were all sorts of curious and fantastic shapes, no two pieces being in any way alike. They picked up some of these pieces and looked at them carefully on one which Dorothy held was an eye which looked at her pleasantly, but with an interested expression, as if it wondered what she was going to do with it. Right near by she discovered and picked up a nose, and by matching the two pieces together found that they were part of a face. "'If I could find the mouth,' she said, "'this fuddle might be able to talk and tell us what to do next.' "'Then let us find it,' replied the wizard. And so all got down on their hands and knees, and began examining the scattered pieces. "'I've found it!' cried the shaggy man, and ran to Dorothy with a queer-shaped piece that had a mouth on it. But when they tried to fit it to the eye and nose, they found the parts wouldn't match together. "'That mouth belongs to some other person,' said Dorothy. "'You see, we need a curve here and a point there to make it fit the face.' Well, it must be here someplace, declared the wizard, so if we search long enough we shall find it. Dorothy fitted an ear on next, and the ear had a little patch of red hair above it, so while the others were searching for the mouth she hunted for pieces with red hair and found several of them which, when matched to the other pieces, formed the top of a man's head. She had also found the other eye and the ear by the time omby Amby in a far corner, discovered the mouth. When the face was thus completed, all the parts joined together with a nicety that was astonishing. "'Why, it's like a picture-puzzle!' exclaimed the little girl. "'Let's find the rest of him and get him all together.' "'What's the rest of him like?' asked the wizard. "'Here are some pieces of blue legs and green arms, but I don't know whether they're his or not. Look for a white shirt and a white apron," said the head which had been put together, speaking in a rather faint voice. I'm the cook. Oh, thank you," said Dorothy. It's lucky we started you first, for I'm hungry, and you can be cooking something for us to eat while we match the other folks together. It was not so very difficult, now that they had a hint as to how the man was dressed, to find the other pieces belonging to him and as all of them now worked on the cook, trying piece after piece to see if it would fit, they finally had the cook set up complete. When he was finished he made them a low bow and said, "'I will go at once to the kitchen to prepare your dinner. You will find it something of a job to get all the fuddles together, so I advise you to begin on the Lord High Chiglewitz, whose first name is Larry.' He's a bald-headed fat man, and is dressed in a blue coat with brass buttons, a pink vest and drab breeches. A piece of his left knee is missing, having been lost years ago, when he scattered himself too carelessly. That makes him limp a little, but he gets along very well with half a knee. As he is the chief personage in the town of Fuddlecumjig, he will be able to welcome you and assist you with the others so it will be best to work on him while I'm getting your dinner. We will, said the wizard, and thank you very much, Cook, for the suggestion. Aunt Em was the first to discover a piece of the Lord High Chicklewits. It seems to me like a fool business, this matching folks together, she remarked, but as we haven't anything to do till dinner's ready, we may as well get rid of some of this rubbish. Here, Henry, get busy and look for Larry's ball head. I've got his pink vest, all right." They worked with eager interest, and Billina proved a great help to them. The yellow hen had sharp eyes, and could put her head close to the various pieces that lay scattered around. She would examine the Lord High Chicklewits and see which piece of him was next needed, and then hunt around until she found it. So before an hour had passed, old Larry was standing complete before them. "'I congratulate you, my friends,' he said, speaking in a cheerful voice. "'You are certainly the cleverest people who ever visited us. I was never matched together so quickly in my life. I'm considered a great puzzle, usually.' "'Well,' said Dorothy, "'there used to be a picture-puzzle craze in Kansas, "'and so I've had some experience matching puzzles. "'But the pictures were flat while you were round, "'and that makes you harder to figure out.' Thank you, my dear," replied old Larry, greatly pleased. I feel highly complimented. Were I not a really good puzzle, there would be no object in my scattering myself. Why do you do it? asked Aunt Em severely. Why don't you behave yourself and stay put together? The Lord High Chicklewitz seemed annoyed by this speech, but he replied politely, Madam, you have perhaps noticed that every person has some peculiarity. Mine is to scatter myself, but your own peculiarity is, I will not venture to say, but I shall never find fault with you, whatever you do." "'Now you've got your diploma, Em,' said Uncle Henry with a laugh, "'and I'm glad of it. This is a queer country, and we may as well take people as we find them.' "'If we did, we'd leave these folks scattered,' she returned, and this retort made everybody laugh good-naturedly. Just then omby ambi found a hand with a knitting needle in it, and they decided to put Grandmother Gannit together. She proved an easier puzzle than old Larry, and when she was completed they found her a pleasant old lady, who welcomed them cordially. Dorothy told her how the kangaroo had lost his mittens, and Grandmother Gannit promised to set to work at once and make the poor animal another pair. Then the cook came to call them to dinner, and they found an inviting meal prepared for them. The Lord High Chicklewits sat at the head of the table, and Grandmother Gnit at the foot, and the guests had a merry time and thoroughly enjoyed themselves. After dinner they went out into the yard and matched several other people together, and this work was so interesting that they might have spent the entire day at Fuddlecumjig had not the wizard suggested that they resume their journey. "'But I don't like to leave all these poor people scattered,' said Dorothy, undecided what to do. "'Oh, don't mind us, my dear,' returned old Larry. Every day or so some of the Gillikins or Munchkins or Winkies come here to amuse themselves by matching us together, so there will be no harm in leaving these pieces where they are for a time.' But I hope you will visit us again, and if you do, you will always be welcome, I assure you." "'Don't you ever match each other?' she inquired. "'Never, for we are no puzzles to ourselves, and so there wouldn't be any fun in it.' They now said goodbye to the queer fuddles, and got into their wagon to continue their journey. "'Those are certainly strange people,' remarked Aunt Em thoughtfully as they drove away from Fuddlecumjig, But I really can't see what use they are at all. Why, they amused us all for several hours, replied the wizard. That is being of use to us, I'm sure. I think they're more fun than playing solitaire or mumbly peg, declared Uncle Henry soberly. For my part, I'm glad we visited the fuddles. End of chapter 12